0: Welcome to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast, where your co-hosts Dale Yuzuki, Cindy Lawley and Sarantis Klamidis from Olink Proteomics talk about the intersection of proteomics with genomics for drug target discovery, the application of proteomics to reveal disease biomarkers, and current trends in using proteomics to unlock biological mechanisms. Here we have your hosts, Dale, Cindy, and Sarantis. Welcome
1: to Proteomics in Proximity. I'm Dale Yuzuki, your host along with cindy lally and sarantis clematis and here we have a special treat today sarantis yeah thank you thank you dale i'm, I'm really happy to be back from holidays and
2: then having like a first uh, like our first host uh, maria and Maria's is a student she's a phd candidate, she's a phd student matthias and lab and she had recently a great paper she was the first out of a great paper that we will discuss a little bit later about these morning details Maria uh, started her studies in Barcelona, in Autonomous University of Barcelona. Then she moved to uh, Stockholm and she gained the master's degree joined the Protein Atlas, uh, the Human Protein Atlas project in 2020, and since 2022, she's part of Mathiasun Ullen Lab, and she's working in an amazing project around proteomics in different diseases and cancer also, including cancer, Try to identify signatures, protein signatures. Maria's background is uh, around, of course, proteomics, transcriptomics, and she's also bioinformatician and wet lab scientist, That means she has a complete package of a full, uh, you know, experience and expertise in the field, also in the field of multiomics. that's something I'm really interested also to hear, and I will start my question, actually, Maria, I mean, we are really happy to have you, and uh, always, it's always a pleasure to discuss with you, and I would like to know a little bit more, how will you see your transition from transcriptomics to proteomics, and how do you see the match between these two omics approaches, actually, from your perspective?
0: Yeah. Thank you, Sarantis. Uh, it's really great to be here today. So I think for me, it was a very smooth transition, basically because at the Human Protein Atlas, that's been kind of a very connected thing. It's never been like transcriptomics is one thing and then proteomics is something completely independent. It's always been quite linked. And that's because, uh, of course, Human Protein Atlas has uh, been about understanding proteins. But we have not always been able to just look at them right away in such a scale, right? Uh, I mean, now with Olink, it seems like that has been there forever. But in the very early days, transcriptomics was a really, really useful tool to, to look at the proteins, indirectly, of course. But it's still, we learned a lot, I think. And it's a resource that it's still used to this date uh, in many, many groups. So I was really lucky to, to work with the transcriptomics first, I think, so that I could understand, like, I sometimes kind of say that that's the simple part where everything is like clean <laughs> and like you don't have so much like noise of like uh, post translational modifications and so on. So I think it's more of the straightforward tissue transcriptomics analysis. But now, of course, it's really great to go to more of plasma proteomics, which is kind of the other extreme.
1: To um, ask you a little bit about the transcriptomics piece, there at Science for, it was there at Science for Life Laboratories, right? And was the interest there in transcriptomics around a cancer indication or was it just across tissues?
0: Yeah, so the very early transcriptomics, um, that was published around 2015 uh, in science and that was healthy tissue. So that was kind of a really big um, study across different tissues, tried to just characterize which proteins are specific. Um, And that was kind of the flagship of the protein atlas, tried to just see what's there. Um, But then of course, there's been other... More like integrating with GTEx data and trying to understand, of course, a little bit more in, in disease.
1: And so uh, this transcriptomic data set was from the tissues from Science for Life laboratories, right? It, it, like you mentioned, there are other projects that are characterizing tissues like GTEx. Uh, what made the Science for Life effort unique or different?
0: So uh, nowadays at the Human Protein Atlas, we have both data from, from um, HPA and GTEx integrated into the database. When I say HPA, I mean human protein atlas. It's just a little bit uh, too long. Um, So our own samples, for example, we have a really detailed brain um, collection of samples. So it's not only brain, but we have like, I think it's, yeah, tens of of different regions in the brain. So, for example, we have a ton of of, uh, detail on on that stage with, that you can't really have with, with GTEx data. So it was more trying to, to complement. And also, of course, if you have two different independent um, sources of, of data that agree on the same uh, transcriptome levels, that's, of course, very reassuring. So that's why we try to combine both um, in the same database.
3: Amazing. So, so, hey, Maria, this is my first chance to ask a question. And I'm actually gonna gonna click back to ask about your interest in getting into science. So I'm and, and usually we say you don't have to start with elementary school. But if you want to, <laughs> I mean, whatever, <laughs> whatever, you know, sparked this interest in you, I'd, I'd love to hear about that. And then what, what nurtured that interest to to end up in Matthias's lab? I mean, what what a remarkable place to be.
0: Yeah. No, thank you for the question. Uh, it's, of course, always difficult to know when it all started. Um, but I think you will probably click with this, that uh, biology is just fascinating. Like You see people getting old, people getting sick. Um, I don't know. I, I see the effect of epigenetics as well. Um, I have a twin sister myself, so I was always like surrounded by what I thought was biology. And then I thought studying genetics, which, which was my bachelor's, that would... Allow me to, to see why this is happening, why we're getting old, why we're getting different, uh, why we're getting sick. So I think that was for me what raised my interest in science. But I think also back then I didn't know how, how science really looked like. So I didn't know about scientific research and, and so on. It was more of a dream, right? Like let's, let's work on, on something fun. Um, yeah, but then of course about Matthias Grip, uh, that was, when I moved here to, to Sweden, of course, I had heard about the Protein Atlas before. We used it in in, in our bachelor's and, and, and during the master's. But then I think moving to Sweden was really putting me very close to his group and to his research. So you learn a lot during the master's about the, the database. And, and I also got to know people in the lab. Uh, so that's really how, how I ended up there. Um, and you moved through, it,
3: it sounds like you, you committed to doing a master's first, and then that evolved into doing the PhD. How did that, it, you know, like, how did they keep the carrot in front of you that you, <laughs> that you, <laughs> were, that you kept moving through that? Because it's, um, I, I love the, the stories behind making these decisions. I think students are hungry for other people's stories about this.
0: Yeah, I think for me it was moving here to, to SciLife Lab, uh, or starting my, my master's here. I had not, uh, connected so much with, with research and like academic life, uh, at my previous university. Not because of the university. I think it was more of the, like how bachelors are structured in, in Spain and, and in many other countries. You don't really get to feel how it is to be a researcher. But then I moved here to, to Sweden and I started this program. And they had a really nice uh, mentorship initiative where you could get a PhD student as a mentor. And for me, that, really, that was really what, what changed my perspective. I was paired with uh, Max Carlson, a PhD student here at uh, Matthias Ulenz. Uh And that's really when I saw, OK, this is, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be.
3: That's amazing. I love that story. The, the mentorship and that the, the fact that they structured that with the mentorship. That's amazing. So, so then this publication that, that Sarantis hinted at and that Dale talked about in the intro, um, this is, this is essentially a, a a pretty remarkable set of data looking at for over 1400 patients that had acro- across 12 different cancers, and uh, about 14, this was our Explore 1536 O-Link uh, tool, and so I think 1463 proteins were included in this study, and you were, uh, tell us a little bit about the study, because it, it's, it's a remarkable paper.
0: Yeah, no, for me, um, I was already working at, at, uh, at this group when they started like the planning and, and everything was being run, so of course hearing about I mean, the total number of of samples for for the first phase was 10,000. So this is only the, the the cancers that we're talking about. So I was thinking about this, and I was uh, this is unbelievable. <laughs> I had already worked with Olink data, but it was only a few panels. So also moving to Explore, that was I was really really interested. And um, the data was delivered um, at the very very early 2022, or maybe even a December 2021 and that was exactly when I started my PhD so ah. you can't imagine how it felt like well this is first wow. of all a Christmas present and then a welcoming present so yeah th- that felt really really exciting also because we didn't know anything back then like is there going to be any signal in this 10,000 samples so that was really exciting times,
3: and you already had pretty strong experience in bioinformatics, right? So I imagine
0: it really was, like Exactly, crystal- yes. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have been a bit scary, maybe to, yeah. to get all these.
1: <laughs> Jump right into the deep end of the pool. <laughs>
3: That's right. That's right. And so, and so, you were the the ten thousand samples. Is that including the UCan Biobank? Is are those all within the UCan Biobank? You also in this study uh, used the Scabies Wellness cohort that's also under the auspices of the SciLife Lab, as I understand it, Uh, is that right?
0: Yes, so these 10,000 samples, um, that included UCAN Biobank, which is this Swedish uh, initiative which collects samples from many different cancers, and that's the study that that is now published. So that's around 1,500 samples in total. And then we also had other cohorts, like you mentioned the the scarpies, you mentioned wellness, so this is other Swedish and also um, non-Swedish cohorts uh, from, from other different diseases. We also have infectious data, uh, infectious disease, um, autoimmune disease from Karolinska Institute. So it's really a lot. And of course, we had to break it down. And um, that's kind of the first uh, published study. But we have a lot of lines of research open right now.
2: Hey, can I ask you for some some a technical, and I'm, I'm sorry if it's a very really naive question, uh, if I understand correct the, the controls were for a wellness cohort for a different cohort right in the way. Do you think that is it easy or how easy it is to just have a control for a different cohort in order to to have let's say a, a well-studied project
0: from, yeah, your so perspective,
2: I, from your perspective?
0: Yeah so ideally you would always run case control right like you would have For every single disease and every single cohort, you would have much controls. Uh, That's usually possible, but then, of course, if you run 10,000 samples, um, it's it's a real loss if you just need to spend 50% 50 of that on on controls. So we've been trying to include different sets of healthy cohorts, so not only wellness, but we also have, for example, we talked about the scapis, Then we have also healthy individuals, um, also from Turkey. So just try to have... Uh, many different ones, so we can see, we can have a look at the pre-analytical variation, and we can we can see that everything makes sense across cohorts. Uh, but of course, that's that's always a limitation, right? In in these big studies, that you can't, um, yeah, you have to live with that, <laughs> with uh, maybe couple healthy cohorts, but not much per disease.
2: No, so. and I think also. The fact that you have different type of cancer it's a kind of control, internal control in the way, right? Because you expect to see this classification in a specific type of cancer rather than the other. That's a kind of, you know, there's specific effects happening in one like the other. And also, it's a kind of control. Therefore, this makes the study really, really, really amazing. Can you give a comment? Because when I start reading a little bit, and can you give a comment about the lung and colorectal cancer? There's something common between this. I haven't heard about what is your your feeling and what, is your, what do you think is happening in this type of cancers, having so much commonalities
3: rather than differences? And just, just for context, I'll just say those are two of the 12 cancers for which... The the team uh, characterized uh, the ability to differentiate among these cancers within this study. So that was the the primary focus and the exciting result, which allowed for um, leveraging machine learning in characterizing those signatures. So I think these particular cancers were a little challenging, perhaps, but also an opportunity for for advancing our understanding. So yeah, Maria, please.
0: You know, I'm, I'm happy you asked about that because, I mean, as a bioinformatician without a very strong medical background, that was my first question, like, what is this? <laughs> so that's a uh, shout out to our um, doctors that we are very lucky to have and, and, and call in anytime we have these kind of questions. So we had very strong discussions about this because it's kind of the biggest overlap that we saw. So there is an overlap between the immune cancers. So they have some shared signals. But also this lung and colorectal, and I was really wondering, like, why? Why could this be? And after meeting with them, I mean, of course, we would have to, like, look farther into this. Probably get more, like, samples with, um, yeah, more detail, like uh, histology and and so on. But their guess is that we are looking at two cancers that are mostly adenocarcinomas, and it's probably a common signature in in, in the pathway in the development of this type of cancer. So it was mostly apoptotic signal. And I think also like cellular stress, which is quite quite a general thing. But it makes sense that we don't really see that in, for example, immune cell cancers. Like it's, it's, for them, it, it was quite obvious, but I, I had exactly the same reaction you had now. Like, why would that be? <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's a nice thing about collaborating with, with the doctors.
3: And I think this ability to to it's almost like i picture it as a venn diagram of these what seem like quite disparate diseases the pathways that are overlapping in these diseases i think are giving us a sense of that mechanistic biology so i think you're turning yourself into someone who understands that as well as the bioinformatics like Sarantis said quite a full package of of someone who can can work with with these data and their complexity
1: I mean on that note on um, data complexity if I understand correctly it was in review for many many months right i think the preprint showed showed up maybe december january and it wasn't published until what late july uh, can you comment on that in terms of of uh, the review process in terms of what you can share was it because the data with the machine learning right in terms of those algorithms was that where a lot of the review work uh, in- entailed
0: yeah, so uh, I think you understood a little bit of the of the complexity. So it's really huge amount of data, and and when you're dealing with with this kind of data and machine learning, it's a little bit dangerous sometimes. So it's kind of you, you need machine learning to understand it, but then you also you should be skeptical about it. Uh, so I understand 100% why it took maybe a bit longer than expected because you need to make sure that the pipeline is is rigorous and and that there's enough controls of uh yeah that that it's not noise that you're capturing of course that we will never know until we replicate or or validate our findings in in different cohorts um but yeah to be sure as much as possible that this is uh a really well structured study and i'm happy Mm. that we went through this revision so that everything is Mm. in place
1: Um, yeah you know when i saw some of the first reaction on social media namely over linkedin it was interesting, right? One of the, not criticisms, or yeah, it may have been a slight criticism that these were post-diagnostic samples. By that, I mean, this was taken untreated individuals at the time of diagnosis, these 1,400 samples. Uh, what can you say about that in terms of, could you have gotten pre-diagnostic samples or what have you for an early no, detection? I, mm-hmm.
0: I, I really understand. And I mean, I would call it also a limitation, right? I mean, it's, uh, of course... You need like many different kinds of studies. And I think this one is also is very interesting. But then, of course, knowing that these proteins are also up before diagnostics, that's, that's of course really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in our case, we have access to this uh, biobank. So we couldn't just yes. uh, start now and we, we would have to wait 10 years, right, to, yes. to get all this data. So we still think it's valuable um, mm-hmm. to know what happens at diagnostics, uh, at time of diagnosis we also for example we had early stage and late late stage samples so we also think it's relevant to to see that these proteins are also up in early stage and i can comment maybe that that now with all these uk biobank um new data that has been released um there was for example a preprint i think it was last week also on on different kinds of cancers and uh i was for example very happy to see that a lot of our proteins that we found regulated, they also see seven years prior to diagnostic. So I think it's, it's valuable and complementary, maybe. So we don't have to wait so many years to see um, when we already have samples. But then, of course, if we also have that data, that's that's definitely great.
1: I think that was one of the most fascinating aspects of your paper in that you found in your signatures across the 12 cancer types some well-known markers for well-known cancers have been researched for extensively, and then other new markers that imply new mechanisms. And, and what can you comment on that?
0: Yeah, for, for me, that was the most fascinating. <coughs> because if, I mean, it's great when you find the top marker and that's already been found, because yep. then you're sure that you're doing yep. things right. Exactly. But if everything was known, then... Why am I even working with this, right? So it's. Uh, I think it's good to have a combination of really well-known markers, unknown, and maybe some of my favorites are are those that. They are. They have been described somewhere in two thousand fifteen in a random paper, but no one has ever looked at those, and they have they have been forgotten. Uh, and then you find it, and 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 you dig in the literature, and you realize, wow, this this was, this was linked to myeloma many years ago, uh, and I'm seeing it again. These are my favorites.
1: So here it is. You heard it here first from a bioinformaticist that she has favorite markers.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's a big surprise. I, I do want to talk. Just uh, mention that preprint. I'm so happy you talked about it. I think that was Ruth Travis and Carl Smith Byrne yes. and Josh and and I. I just have a little tiny story. When we were at ESHG, Joshua came up to our booth and he told us how excited he was about the UKB data being available that he's been uh, sifting through it. And he was the one, Dale and Sorrentis, I think I told you this story before, who just kept telling me, I can't tell you anything about it because we're coming out with a preprint, but holy crap, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap. He was so excited about mining those data. And so if, if, you know, if if he's a representative of, of the kind of excitement that a, a resource like that can, can generate, I, I think we're going to have some really fun conversations in the next few months about what people are, are seeing there. So, it's, it's, yeah, thank you for, for highlighting that preprint. It
1: truly pioneering work, right? There is only one first, and like you mentioned, you're looking at some random paper in 2015 that had some association with one of those 12 cancer types, and all of a sudden, it pops up. Right, yeah. as being an important. I thought that was very interesting too in the analysis, where you actually look at the weightings and its influence on the overall power. Right, in terms of that signature goes.
0: Yeah, and I think something that is also, um, for me, a take home from from this study, uh, and we probably haven't talked about it yet, is that uh, not all cancers have like the same, um, yeah, the same amount of proteins that are important. Right, so you can have maybe you need 20 proteins to characterize a cancer, or you might need 200. And I think that was not so evident for all of us Um, a few years ago, like we were hoping to find one protein Oh, The smoking
3: right. gun. We uh,
0: want the smoking
3: gun. Yeah, the yes. one single
1: biomarker. Right, it's so right. much easier
3: to get clinical utility uh, past it, you know, past the FDA. And they love having one single test, one single HDL, LDL, you know, these are, yeah, but it turns I mean, out there's <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. But the body's so good at repurposing all these proteins for all these different Different tissues. Uh, yeah, it's. It, I think it's a good lesson. I will say, I'm. I'm. I. am i am i am just chuffed. I love this. Um, this figure, and uh, having Mateus, uh talk through this figure, which really characterizes some of the signatures that are are. Um, that are showing up stronger in some cancers than others. I And then the connective diagram that you have. Sorry, we don't use slides on this podcast, no, but fine. I will say that the images are gorgeous that allow us to just talk about what you've done and, and help, Folks understand the significance of the uh, approach across multiple different diseases, right? So, and and then I think you you capture it well uh, around the importance of early cancer detection and these tools around genetic uh, detection of cell free DNA, for example, in in blood. They'd suffer from from false positives, and that's a big concern that folks will be um, given a, a potential diagnosis that that isn't isn't real uh at the because we want to make sure we capture some of these cancers in early stages that are real and so being able to add value to that um approach do you have any thoughts about how this might complement that how it how it might be leveraged in combination uh with some of these innovative new approaches
0: yeah, no, that's a very, very relevant and uh, a very relevant comment. And we talk about it a lot here because, I mean, when we see the false positive rates and it doesn't look so, so bad when you look at the numbers. But then if you think about a population scale, then, then that would be a disaster, right? If you could call in uh, so many patients. And an individual
3: so, patient experience too, why, right? How that feels, how that would feel to, to an individual to, yeah, exactly what you say.
0: Yeah. And I mean, we've, what we've discussed before is that it's it's of course really nice with with cancers that you can you have like external means of of getting a, a validation that the person has the cancer so instead of just running the blood test and and saying oh yeah you're diagnosed with with the uh, cervical cancer if you would have a way to verify that uh like for example mammography or 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 some other test then that's it's kind of easy to convince the population that this is only a screening. Uh, that it's not that sensitive, and then if you get the, fa- the false alarm, then you of course get uh, sent back home when, when you get the negative second test. Yeah. Um, but when I think about about for example cell-free DNA and, and other ways of of uh, ident- like finding cancer that are very promising, I think that if we could maybe combine um, cell-free DNA testing with with prote- proteomics in plasma, that would probably filter out some of the false positives, some people that would have maybe dna signal but are not so strong on the proteomic side or the other way around so i think it would be at least two layers uh where it's more difficult to be a false positive or on the other hand a false negative yeah so i think maybe
3: multi-omics (laughs) multimodal those words
1: yeah what a lot of people uh found out at AACR in Orlando, right, was the readout for the phase three clinical trial for the gallery grail test. And the fact is, it just replicated the phase two and phase one uh, pivotal trial or clinical trials in that there is about a 50% false positive rate, even with 99% specificity, just because the prevalence of cancer is about 1% in the general population, right? Of, of, of normal uh, risk. And that is a problem, right? But then to think, mm-hmm. oh, and, and therefore, right, the harms that happen where people are saying, well, we have the signal, we're not sure, right? If you have cancer or not, you have to look for a regular diagnosis and naturally for colorectal or for lung adenocarcinoma, it's all very straightforward in terms of diagnosing those. But the gallery test is looking at 48 other cancer types and some of them really do not have gold standard diagnostic methods. And so, patients can be sent, right? You might say, well, it must be terrible to be that person. Yeah, right? Where they're told you might have cancer and we can't really find it using our best diagnostic tools, uh, a real genuine harms, right, to individuals. And yet, at the same time, the value of early detection, right—the incredible power to prevent death, right—to catch yeah. it in stage one.
0: Yeah. If you can't, if you can't, if you know about this this uh, false positive rate and you can't validate that that is indeed a cancer, then you're also not going to treat it, I guess. So yeah. right. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, for me, I think that in, in the ideal case scenario, you would just be able to sample everyone longitudinally through their lives. And I think then it would be really easy. I'm saying easy, but yes. it would be easier to, to, to find, uh, differences in your proteome and like actual, uh, pathological, um, states. But now, I mean, you're sampling a person, comparing it to some thresholds, some other data that has been collected. There's going to be a lot of noise. Yeah. Um, but of course that's daydreaming. Like yeah. what, what would I like to have?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And next steps, right? Sort of what's, what's in the future in this in this study you were able to do sort of a 70 30 split to be able to train your, um, your machine learning around a set of the samples and then validate with a, a subset of those samples. And I think your, your areas under the curve for across all cancers were like 0.8 to 1, but really, really high in AML, CLL, and myeloma, as I, as I wrote down in, in my notes. I think that next steps are um, for for validation Anything you can say about what what you all are planning or what you hope others will do to to help validate this so that we understand its power?
0: Yeah, so I mean ideally as I said it it would be nice to just work with these cancers for many, many years and 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 get additional cohorts and validate all these findings. But our plan for now was to share this data, share all the protein levels in the database so when and, Like for example now the preprint that we just referred to, of course they they found exactly the same proteins in in myeloma and that was really okay. We we haven't validated ourselves, but these Perfect, people have yeah. found it in Sweden, right? Yeah. So it's not only us to maybe validate these findings, but we also hope that other research groups will will refer to this and, and realize that they have the same thing in their own data, maybe even with other methods. Um, so just. It was more to share a list and to share our results and and hope that also other people will will do the same.
3: Yeah, and I think I think this this ability to because I can imagine you know sort of these three to to twelve to however many proteins are needed for each each cancer those tests. But then you did this beautiful thing, which is combine the proteins that were across all of these into an eighty three protein panel that was I think really um, i'll I'll let you you describe that. I think it's it's uh, it's a great part of the paper that I appreciated and wanted to highlight.
0: yeah, no, so so of course, I mean, the most important is to learn about the proteins that are important for a disease, or that was the the aim. But what we wanted to to see also is if we can go down, so instead of looking at one thousand four hundred proteins, what happens if we just pick what we think are the most representative? Uh, do we still get good classifications? Do we still are we still able to separate all these samples into their specific cancer of origin? And I think, I mean, of course, this is only a uh, yeah the first study uh, we haven't validated, but it it looks quite nice that that only using eighty proteins instead of a thousand, you can really uh, guess what that sample is. Uh, and I mean, in the future, that I think would be a really nice um, a really nice way to look at, at uh, diseases, to just have a list of markers for not only cancers, but maybe other, other diseases that, that could be related, and then just try to see where your sample falls. Um, so based on these markers, you're most likely a uh, cervic cancer patient.
2: Yeah, I have, I, have a que- I have actually two questions. The first question is like uh, more, how do you see... Uh, for sure, there are other databases with other diseases, right? How would you see this protein S83 so correlate with other diseases? I mean, how unique, because mm. you haven't done this correlation, how unique are, you check between cancer, but how unique is it compared to other immunological disorders, for example?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, for that you will have to wait a little bit. <laughs> 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 I mean, as I said, we have many, many different diseases now. I think Super. we have around 88 in phase one Super. and we are planning for a second phase so yeah expect us to to write about this um Super. i think it's also been highlighted in other pieces of work that there is a few proteins that are found kind of everywhere i think gdf 15 is one of them um it's some proteins that are just up in also immune proteins they are probably inflammation is everywhere but there's also quite many that are very very specific so uh, I'm yeah. always reading Oling papers because it's really fun to see, okay, this protein that popped up for colorectal is also maybe related to HIV, I don't know. Wow, so, it's, it's that, quite nice. That's uh, it's so
3: cool. A- and, and expanding the protein panels, right? We've just announced the yeah. expansion to 5300 yeah. proteins, which, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Sorrentis, you have another <laughs> no, question. No, I, I was just mentioning to mention this, yeah. no, no, perfect, yeah. perfect indeed. We think the same, I think.
1: <laughs> the... I mean, just thinking about what you just said in terms of proteins that are common to disease that goes beyond just cancer or just autoimmune or just infectious, and to think, wow, to have a certain set of markers that, yeah, there's something going on here, or yeah, you better get this checked out.
0: <laughs> that I, I is guess, wild. I guess would yeah, would you could start monitoring these more general markers since it is probably expected that more specific markers will pop up later on mm-hmm. the disease. And then once you know something's wrong, you could go deeper and, and run another panel maybe. Um, and I just want to comment on this uh, new release uh, of, of the Explorer mm. uh, HD, do you call it? Yes, mm-hmm. yes, that's right. Um, I think that's, that's uh, really exciting, at least from my side, because when... I don't know uh, when you work in in biomarker discovery. I don't think a lot of people are used to this really high number of targets. And for me, already 1,500, I felt like that was amazing, right? Like eventually you start getting to know some proteins by heart, but it's still it's still a lot of proteins to uh, to look at. But now, I mean, from of course you had 3,000 in between, but for me, going from 1,500 to more than 5,000 proteins that we will have on the next phase, that's I'm really looking forward for that. That's going to be a really nice. Well, <laughs> it's a really nice list. It's a good
3: chance to mention that just this week we've integrated that entire list into our Insight app. So this is a freely available software that has a, a web-based interface at insight.olink.com, and uh, and you can browse pathways, see how many of the total proteins in those pathways we have on that HT and, and our other panels. I I'm in there all the time. I was surprised that I'm a Super user of it, so clearly it's underutilized. Because <laughs> so it's it's relatively a, a new um, a new set of tools that we've provided in the last year, really, uh, and the data stories in there include the uh, the cancer protein atlas uh, that we're talking about here today. So folks can browse some of the results that you found uh, in that exciting study, which, by the way, Nature Communications, um, you're a PhD student. Look at you, Maria. (laughs) Amazing.
1: (laughs) It is amazing. I mean, on that note, Maria, right, there is an idea for a disease protein atlas. Is that correct? Not just Mm. cancer, but other diseases. What can you comment on that?
0: Yeah. So right now we have published these story. So that's the data that's available now on the Atlas. It's still called human disease blood Atlas, although now it's more like a cancer Atlas. Um, mm-hmm. but the idea is we, we're going to keep on releasing data. So, so I mentioned phase one that has infectious diseases. It has autoimmune disease. Um, and many others that's going to be soon, <laughs> relatively soon, um, part of the, of the database. So. And then, of course, we have plans to expand to a phase two and, and, and have more targets. So that's also going to be part of the Atlas and hopefully the o Insight as well so that it, it can reach us, as many researchers as possible.
1: That's an amazing resource. Doesn't Matthias talk about how many millions of hits and how many thousands of pages of data freely available?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's... It's really a unique effort, I'd say. And also, I, I kind of really like the history of like focusing on proteins and now going a little bit more. We had this health uh, study, and now we have this disease study. So I think it's quite a natural course of, of how you should look at biology. Right,
1: um, from the healthy to the disease, and look at those differences.
0: Maria,
2: talking about... About a little bit biomarkers, and I know that the, the scope of the, of the project is around identifying biomarkers for prognosis. But for sure, among these biomarkers, there will be targets, right, for, for drugs. I mean, are you considering mm. to take a look more to the drug development perspective? I'm sure that you are. But uh, have you found some really cool new targets, for example, that pharma companies could take advantage on?
3: And do you need if any you, new... If you co- want yeah. I mean, if you want to yeah. share
2: or it's too early, it's, yeah, uh, it's up to you.
3: Do you need more cohorts to validate those those drug <laughs> targets? In yeah, both of those. Great questions.
0: Yeah, no. So, so I think we, you're both on the right path. Uh, like we, of course, understand how how valuable this data is, and uh, we are of course starting to see some proteins that look very interesting. Um, but as you both mentioned, it's early in the sense that you need lots of validation. So. We want to be careful with that. Um, we are of course look like we of course look at different markers. We we have an eye on them, uh, but it it takes it takes a while uh, before you can you can say anything about the disease.
3: But crowdsourcing the data like this, making it publicly available, allowing different folks with different ideas about how to analyze these data, have them debate over social media, as as Dale was alluding to, really moves things along quickly. In my experience, I think the uh, the genetic history is a great testament to that. I think we're we're seeing that now too, so I'm excited that that you're making these data publicly available and matthias's uh, commitment to that throughout his career.
0: yeah for me for me, that's a really important thing that of course it's great to move forward in your own uh, science. Um, but what you said, for example, about drug target development, maybe some people doing their own research, they will see this resource they will find, okay, this is really a good target, and, and that will inspire them. So I think Matthias' uh, spirit has always been to share and to inspire, and I think that's a great way to do science. At least I'm very happy I'm here. Oh, on that I note, think that's an
1: important yeah. point, right? Because wasn't there a decision made on the, on the analysis to focus in on the upregulated proteins in the disease samples?
0: Yes, and that's also been a, a long debate, of course, um, because, yeah, typically upregulated proteins are very interesting because it's like with, with the, yeah, it's kind of easy to detect them when, when they are high compared to a healthy population, right? But, and also sometimes, like for example, we saw with, with AML, with leukemia, that you had this really good market that was upregulated and this really good market that was downregulated. Uh, and, and you would think maybe let's take both, but many times they are just, correlated because one is the receptor of, of the other, right? So, in a way, sometimes up and down regulated proteins, they are still in the same pathway. So, mm-hmm. maybe it's not that interesting to focus, to focus on, on on both at the same time since they are mm. leading to the same story. And so, then in the, our case, hmm. yeah.
1: Well, the other piece, though, is that if you can modulate the upregulatedness of the disease protein, Right that actually is a drug target, right? Where drugs are really good at lowering proteins. <laughs> there are yeah. only a handful of drugs that upregulate proteins.
0: Yeah, I, I guess when we talk about it being more classical from the clinical perspective, it's related to exactly that, that yeah. it's kind of easier to suppress uh, than <laughs> it is maybe to, to just somehow make this protein be produced or provided. Yeah.
3: yeah, I've never thought about that. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, Thanks.
1: Yeah, so therefore, right, we have drug targets that you need to lower in order to lower whatever incidence or whatever mechanism that's driving the cancers. Uh, And what's, I think, fascinating about cancer biology, after all we've learned in the cancer genomics and transcriptomics, here it is, you're looking at protein level now. Maybe we're circling back all the way to the beginning of the conversation, (laughs) right? You'd started with transcriptome, and wow, once you look at the proteome, everything is right. Illuminate in a new way.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the real thing, right? I mean, it is. We are proteins, so it's uh, it's really, really nice to be able now to look at proteins directly um, and see. Also, in blood, like you don't even have to go to your pancreas to to study pancreatic cancer. You can hopefully just look at your blood.
1: I never thought of that before. I am protein. Yeah, (laughs) we are protein. I think (laughs)
0: that's because you haven't talked to Matthias.
3: Hard to get on his schedule, but we've got a surrogate (laughs) for Matias right here. So I think this will be our new, this will be our new mantra here. I think you've made an impact, Maria.
1: Every one of us is protein. That's right. Yeah. What a thought. Well, Maria, thank you for your generosity with your time today. We really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. It's it's been really great to discuss with you. Yeah. You. And then not
3: just not to forget to thank all of these patients that consented to allow uh, you know it, it, now and in the future all the work that you and others do. I mean, what a what a wonderful generous act. And and without it we'd be we wouldn't be where we are today. So yeah.
1: For That's sure. Awesome. Amazing. All right. Thank you. Thank, thank you. So
3: Thanks so much. Thank
1: you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Proteomics in Proximity podcast brought to you by Olink Proteomics. To contact the hosts or for further information, simply email info at olink.com.